Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, my name is Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Reevely. And this is, again, another episode of the City on a Hill podcast. And we're doing something a little bit different today, something special. So, Scott, what's okay. What's going on? Well, I am happy that we are here with uh, my friend Todd Miles, who, uh, for the purpose of our podcast, is a church history uh, professor at Western Seminary. He's also an author and teaches a number of other classes. And um, we have... Uh, really been trying to understand kind of how the church and the state end up in the relationship that they're in. And one of the things that first happened to us, I mean, we were maybe one episode in, maybe two episodes in, when we realized we, you know, we didn't just appear having these problems. We had to go back in time Mm. and see what happened where the church and the political interests of people intersected. And so we began to look at church history and that led me to want to talk to Todd about it, and I had just been reading about the American Revolution, and uh, I said, what do you know about the American Revolution? He says, well, I know that uh, without the Great Awakening, there would have been no American Revolution, and I thought, aha, that's what I would really love to talk about. (laughs) So that's where this conversation came from, and before we get there, and before uh, Todd um, kind of chimes in, I just uh, want to say that was my assumption that we needed to look at church history some, but I I guess it's probably going to be helpful to back up and just say for all of our listeners some of the value of church history. And so, Todd, you teach church history, and, you know, if you were going to recommend, what makes you recommend to people that they think about the history of the church yeah uh, aside from job security you mean uh, <laughs> yes okay. study at western you seminary need to there learn you know. church <laughs> history that's right yeah back to our regularly scheduled program now okay. yes um so well the the christian faith is an historic faith mm. and by that i don't just mean that it is one of the great religions and, and that it is historical, but it, it is it is historic and historical in this sense that history actually matters. There are a lot of religions of the world where, if uh, the promoter of that religion, the the initiator, the inventor of it, uh, didn't actually live, or a lot of the things that are said about him were not true, it really wouldn't affect that religion at all, right? If so, hmm. you, I think like of, of, of Buddhism, for example, if, if it was demonstrably proven that there was no, uh, whatever his name was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank now. <laughs> you might add that part out. It's good. It's church history, yeah, not church religious history. history. That's, right. That's good. That's right. Um, but if it was proven that he didn't exist, then it, it wouldn't, wouldn't really affect Buddhism all that much, but there'd still be Buddhists. It, still yeah, but there, there'd still be Buddhism. It wouldn't affect it materially at all, other than you wouldn't know who to, um, uh, you know, credit. Mm. Uh, but 
if it is demonstrably proven that Jesus Christ did not get up from the dead in time and space, then mm. then Christianity is falsified by the criteria set up in the scriptures mm. themselves, right? Paul said, if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, then we're a bunch of idiots for believing this. Uh, so, uh, so in that sense, history matters. Uh, when it comes to the development of doctrine as well, um, you know, you, you might have noticed that the Bible is not a uh, systematic theology book. The, the the Bible comes to us as as a drama of redemptive history, um, a variety of different genres. But a lot of the truths that we say are once for all delivered to the saints are theological constructions based upon the truths that we find in Scripture. And those theological truths were constructed in time and space. And so to study church history is really to study not just the history of the church, but the development of doctrine. Mm-hmm. That, and, and so it, it becomes our story. Uh, there's, I'll just name off, I'll give a, a few more reasons why it's really important to study church history. There's a lot of wisdom in church history as well, mm-hmm. because uh, fortunately for us, we're in the 21st century now, we have 21 centuries of really kind of making mistakes and then uh, by God's grace doing a few things right. Uh, we're, we're never reinventing the wheel, or at least we ought not to be reinventing mm. the wheel. There's, there's pl- you know, we're not blazing any new trails at this point. We're not even the making the, the, the mistake for the first time, no, generally. No, that's true. Right. That's true. And so, so there's a lot of wisdom to be found there, not just in what works, but, but what doesn't. Uh, there, ch- church history is simultaneously deeply discouraging and very encouraging. I, I remember um, my last, about a year ago, teaching church history, and I was just kind of doing this kind of quick intro to the course and, and showing how all these people we'd be looking at, and, and there's there's a lot of mistakes. And, and at some point in there, I was interrupted by this, this one young lady, and she said, this is so discouraging. Is mm. it, what... Uh, there have been so many mistakes and so, what what is this and, and and I said and yet here we are mm. yet here we are 21 mm. centuries later someone preached or shared the gospel with you right who had the gospel shared with them who are part of a local church and Jesus's promise that he will build his church is just as true today as it was back then matter of fact it's probably more believable today than it was back then because at that point he's just staring at you know a tax collector or two and some some Mm. fishermen um now we see it's this multi-ethnic um collection of people who who have been transformed by the spirit of god uh joined in worship and and the ordinances and uh for for all of the division and everything else um the study of church history is a study of God's faithfulness and, and a deeper dive into it. Now, how does Jesus keep his promises? Mm-hmm. How, how has he done that? So, so anyway, there's a few. Yeah, that's no, good. Yeah, thank you. Because uh, I have, uh, I mean, even as you talked about how disappointed that woman was, my own instant reaction was, and I didn't say exactly the same words, but, and now we're here. We're We've here. gotten here yeah. and God's been faithful. That's exactly, uh, exactly the reaction that I had viscerally as you were telling the story. But we thought that, uh, you know, one of the things we're concerned about is our uh, intersection with uh, the, the politics of the United States, the church and the states. And so, you know, we, we initially did a quick sweep back, but we get eventually to the American Revolution, to the start of our country. And uh, when you said, oh, but the Great Awakening, 
was part of the revolution, that really piqued my interest because <laughs> everything that I had heard or read or thought about the Great Awakening was was religious in nature, mm-hmm. and yeah. I'm for it. And I yes. thought, that's <laughs> fabulous. And, um, you know, just to get us started, what would you say was the Great Awakening and, you know, when did it play, take place and, and that? Well, to borrow the language of Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor, a New England pastor um, at, at the time in the early 1700s, it was this extraordinary movement of God's spirit in really unexpected and dramatic ways uh, to a group of people who are at least chronicling it, like Jonathan Edwards, mm-hmm. who probably were deeply skeptical um, that this was going on. And, and yet it, the, the, the credibility of the, the first great awakening actually happening as this powerful movement of the Holy Spirit, I, I think is, is, is bolstered the, the believability of it because the people who chronicled it, it were, <laughs> were probably a bit skeptical mm-hmm. of such, you know, we wouldn't expect Jonathan Edwards to be some crazy charismatic guy. Um, and, and yet he understood what was going on was a dramatic, powerful movement of the spirit. Um, so both in England and in the American colonies of the early 1700s, uh, people who had been faithfully preaching suddenly found that there was remarkable reception to the message, dramatic mm-hmm. reception to the message with incredibly transformed lives. Um, and, it, and it swept across the colonies. It was enabled by some pretty significant personalities along the way. And, and yet... Uh, I I probably overstate that to say that it was enabled. It was used and and promoted by some significant personalities like like a George Whitfield or a Jonathan mm-hmm. Edwards, for example. Um, to a lesser extent, maybe a uh, a John Wesley mm-hmm. uh, over on the other side of the pond. Um, but uh, but but certainly that Edwards chronicled it um, in, in the colonies. Whitfield was was one of the well in church history. I like to say he's really America's first rock star. Um, right. He, he, he was a show that must not be missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, he went up and down the colonies uh, raising money and preaching uh, a, a, a gospel of grace, uh, which was in large part uh, very different than what people were hearing at the time uh, in, in the various churches in the colonies. And, and it swept like wildfire. Um, it, was, it felt more grassroots-ish as well uh, a lot of lay people got involved and it was uh if uh, it was very democratic mm. in that sense mm-hmm. and 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 brought people together outside of their maybe small little churches or denominations or something right yeah and 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 that's probably why i said if there's no great awakening there's no american revolution and mm-hmm. well i'm not saying that the great awakening was necessary like the necessary connecting of the dots that would inevitably lead to american revolution i'm not saying that mm-hmm. i am saying though that the great awakening had a powerful cohesive effect on what were 13 largely disparate colonies with very mm-hmm. different religious experience and very very different political pathos if Mm -hmm. if you will um but when you have someone like a whitfield and others who are going up and down the colonies preaching Mm -hmm. now there's common language there's Mm -hmm. common cause there is a a shared hymnody perhaps Mm -hmm. for the first time regardless of your religious affiliation common testimony um it, it it did have a unifying effect now again that doesn't necessarily lead to revolution but you don't have the kind of of unity in the American Revolution that they did have 
I would say, if not for you don't the, have the, the first environment, great awakening. You don't have the environment that would make the communication or make the the conceptualization even of a revolution mm-hmm. possible if you don't have the sociological right. sort of you might even say they're secondary but the sociological implications of this great awakening which of course that i'd never really thought about that yeah. until mm-hmm. just recently yeah and you you think in, in addition to that and or maybe just to expand on that a little bit more the the, the great awakening i mentioned was very democratic in that you didn't have to be ordained by a church mm. in order to participate in like the teaching and preaching um the the preaching of say like a george whitfield who, who has his own uh baggage for sure but one of the things that marked whitfield's preaching was every person who sat in who, who why he usually didn't watch it was standing room only for him mm-hmm. every person who listened to him felt they were talking directly to him whether you were a, a highly educated person a person with no education, whether you were African-American slave or a, a white free person, whether you were a man or a woman, a grandfather, a father or a child, you got the impression he was talking right to you and that you had to respond to mm. this message that you had heard. And then those who did respond, they felt compelled, apart from any sort of church ordination, to go out and do likewise, keep preaching. And so it was it was very democratic in that sense that that the, in what was very much a hierarchical society where you mm-hmm. understood your place in society and, and the world made sense if you knew where you were on that hierarchy. Now you have something that feels a lot more egalitarian for mm-hmm. the first time. Um, well, that's the kind of thinking that can lead people to say, Things like well, taxation without representation—that's not fair. Or we're not getting our say. Or we're being treated unfairly. Um, those sorts of things. Again, they don't necessarily result in in revolution. I, I don't want to paint that picture sure, at all. Sure. But apart from that kind of thinking, I don't think you do get to where we ended up. It's in, a necessary but not sufficient. Uh, yeah. Factor in the revolution. And one thing I want to make really explicit, which. I'm sure listeners are hearing this right now going, of course that's how ministry works. Uh, it's it's democratic generally, and, and once I hear it, then I go tell it to someone else. Yeah. Uh, we think that because we are after the Great Awakening. Yeah. And it was not like that before mm-hmm. before that, in, at least in America. And 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 after the founding of America with, with its constitution later on. Mm-hmm. Very, very different uh, time. Um you know, we think the American experience is, is separation of church and state. That was not what motivated the, the people to come over. Uh, they wanted, they, they had no issues with state religion. They just wanted right. to be the right one. They mm-hmm. want their religion. They, they wanted the their religion, religion to be yeah. state religion. And, and so largely that's what you had in the 13 colonies was you had a, a number of different state re, or colony mm-hmm. religions. Or, well, well right. state technically, right. state yeah. religions. Um, so in the North, it was more... Uh, congregational or Presbyterian mm-hmm. in the South, it was more uh, Anglican or Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. There were uh, Pennsylvania was like a Quaker state, which was a little more tolerant. And mm-hmm. Maryland with Lord Baltimore was 
was a, a safe haven for Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then Roger Williams, very famously in Rhode Island, um, was 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 kind of a Baptist kind of um, for a while. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a few minutes. So you, you get all these great mm-hmm. awakening preachers who are going mm-hmm. around. At, Whit, one of the reasons why Whitfield was an outdoor preacher was one because he he attracted crowds of thousands of people, thousands mm-hmm. of people. But also he wasn't authorized to preach in their churches he was not allowed to because it was against the law for him to preach he he was now it, he, he was ordained by the anglican church but he didn't have any right to preach in the northern colonies at all right. um, but he did anyway and and all these other people started preaching as well and and some of them even starting churches those were understood to be separatist churches which was a violation of each colony's uh constitution uh, mm-hmm. mandate so um Separatist yeah. meaning you are not a part of the established church of this colony. That's right. right. Which is why we have a we don't establish churches. That's right. In the Constitution. Yes. Yeah. The the, the established churches were supported by taxes and and, and to run uh, to do anything different than that was was illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the early separatist preachers who were doing nothing but what we would understand today. We'd look at their sermons and go, that's just the gospel. Um, <laughs> they were labeled as separatists and were thrown in jail. This is in the American colonies. Well, I thought people came over for religious freedom. No, they didn't. They came over to do religion the way they wanted to do it, mm-hmm. um, it without necessarily consideration for their neighbor um, being able to do religion. He or she wanted they wanted to, to do it. Yeah. 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 That took that took a long time to get there. It did. And some mm-hmm. of the long time to get there, I think, had to do with something you said earlier, that uh, everyone heard the message and felt like they individually needed to respond. I mm-hmm. I think that was that individual sense of my own religion was probably a factor or a result of the Great Awakening too, that it wasn't as individual before. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, and when it became that individual, then, you know, individual rights and liberties mm-hmm. and those sorts of things began to be thoughts that people had that they didn't have before. I, that's that's absolutely right. Um, it, it made sense, at least in the laboratory of life. Right. Um, you, you would have thought that the, say, the pilgrims and the various people coming over, they would have had those thoughts too, but but they didn't connect dots that way. But but when you're in your colonies and there's no ocean to cross to get to freedom <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and liberty where you can do it the way that you want to mandate others do it, you, you have to start thinking this way. And, and, and it wasn't until the, more the Constitutional Convention where you have um, people like a James Madison, for example, uh, Thomas Jefferson, also a, a very strong advocate of religious liberty. Neither of those two people are what we would call like dyed in the wool evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet they were not the at champions. All. <laughs> no, no. The, yeah, so Jefferson clearly not, Madison's a little bit more of a mystery to historians exactly where mm-hmm. he lined up. But what's very clear is that he believed in freedom of conscience and, and, and religious liberty, mm-hmm. um, not not separation of church and state per se. That, that was never the idea. But the idea that the state cannot coerce or promote a specific religion because the, the state is not a fine-tuned precision instrument it's, mm. it's a blunt force trauma club and mm-hmm. and that that is incompatible not just with christianity but with uh human conscience mm-hmm. yeah i mean that was roger williams mm-hmm. thoughts early on oh, of course well, as a, yeah. you know way ahead of his time yeah that point. he was and then but there were also this these several separatists uh prominent separatist pastors mm-hmm. or ministers who allied with 
um, Jefferson and Madison mm-hmm. and said, we too yes. think that this separation of church and state and the non-coercion of conscience is good. And so you have what appears to be a secular interest and a religious yep. interest dovetailing. Exactly. And it's really hard to tell which is which. It mm. is. Which I think is fascinating because, you know, my way of looking at things is a religious mm-hmm. Uh, I want church and state to be separate for religious reasons, whereas the people that I read about in the Oregonian want it to be separate for different reasons. different reasons. And on that we agree, Yeah. but for vastly different reasons, mm-hmm. with vastly different worldviews. Same thing in the colonies at the very beginning. Oh, very much. Which is super interesting to me because we think it's the American way when it was really two different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> you it know, it's sort of funny. Yeah, yeah and it, two different ways that were different than the original way. Um, mm-hmm. which, which is what you had in the colonies, which was very much state religion. Mm-hmm, right. um, yeah, so we're we're at a we're at a fascinating time uh, right now where mm-hmm. I think we're forgetting some of the some of the lessons from from the past and mm-hmm. and, and, and really what even uh, not you know so I'm first and foremost a Christian who happens to be American, but I love the fact that I'm American also, mm-hmm. and I love even for say secular reasons. I love religious liberty and freedom of conscience. Mm. I, I think it is the most authentically human way to go, which, which is what Jefferson and Madison thought. It, it is in order to be at our best, we had to give people the freedom to think their worst. Mm. Um, and, and it's an unhappy consequence, certainly, but vitally important. Mm. Um, and in some respects, uh, from our vantage point, we're super thankful Mm-hmm. That they felt that way, yes. and that they that the, they moved the needle for the colonies, and then for the states to be that way. Because yes, being American is fabulous yeah. in that regard, mm-hmm. for sure. So, um, no, thanks for thinking about that. I mean, as you're thinking about the the Great Awakening coming into these colonies, I mean, what? How would you describe a religious experience, maybe pre? Uh, Great Awakening, because yeah. we don't have any idea about that. I don't think. No, I don't. I don't think so either. Um, so, boy, it's how to be concise with this. Um, the The church, the churches in the American colonies, they had been there for you know hundred years or so. By the time we get to the first Great Awakening, um, it is it is one thing to prove your authentic conversion to Christ by enduring persecution in the motherland and at great risk to self getting on a boat and sailing. That's like evidence that you're a believer, right? Mm -hmm. That's evidence, the kind of evidence that that is certain. Well, then those people came over and established their little utopia, which was never that utopian, but, Mm -hmm. but it, um, but, and, and, and that utopia that I'm describing is, is certainly a, 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 combination of church and state influence they're they're Mm -hmm. they're inextricably tied together well then you start having kids and those kids say they believe the gospel that you believe but everybody in your community believes that gospel except they haven't gone through persecution they didn't get on a boat and take a big boat trip over to prove their that they were actually a christian and so what do we do with them and then we see morals beginning to slide. And now this little utopian place that we wanted to create, it's not quite as utopian as what we wanted it to be. And, and, and so by the time you get to the 17, early 1700s, with some exception, 
um, I'm not going to say that the gospel was lost, but there was a lot of heavy-handed moralism. Mm. Um, you, you didn't have a, a lot of, say, what we would describe in, in evangelical circles as personal piety. Mm. You certainly didn't have any sort of sense of mission. Uh, the, mm. the, the work of the ministry was to be done by those ordained. And if you tried to do the work of the ministry, aside from like being kind to one another, then, then that was unlawful. Um, you know, what, if we think, what, what makes an evangelical an evangelical historically, we, we would say uh, you have to be born again. Well, th- that, that language was lost largely. Mm. Um, you, uh, you believed in personal piety, that there were spiritual disciplines that you could do to have a good relationship with Christ. What, well, what would those be? You know, like read the Bible, meditate on it, scripture memory, mm-hmm. prayer, those kind of things. So we are just fundamental to Christian faith. But someone like a John Wesley was mocked for those in England and because he called them the methods of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. The things that we just think are just like the normal warp and woof of what it is to be Christian. He called them the methods and he was mocked by the Anglican church and he, he and his followers were called Methodists mm-hmm. because they believed in things like prayer and Bible reading. So, 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 so this is where the church is at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a sense of mission was another one that, that I mentioned, a third one. Um, it, yeah, I, things well, like that. It, but they're missing at this point. And so you get very dry, either doctrinal sermons or, or, or very moralistic sermons. And, and, and a critique of a, of a lot of the Great Awakening pastors was that these preachers who were preaching had lost the gospel. Mm. They were no longer preaching a gospel of grace that leads to life. They were preaching a gospel, or, or well, they were preaching law that was no gospel at all, and that leads to death. And it felt like death mm. as well. Oof. That doesn't sound that dissimilar to the, maybe just the, the cultural Christianity we have uh, all over the place in different pockets. Um, and then the the response of, of gospel churches say, Hey, let's talk about the gospel. Mm-hmm. Hold up. This is something different. Yeah. Um, is there, is that a, I think it's a pretty good analog. Is there, is there any distinction between those that would be like, be careful about the way you look at that kind of history. It's not exactly the same. Or is that, well, I think that's, I, I think that's true. It's never exactly the same, sure. but it's not radically different either. Mm-hmm. And the, the irony of course, is the Protestant Protestant churches had gone through this just 200 years earlier. Right. Uh, with, so with, if they would have done church history, then they, <laughs> they, they would, would have been good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the same things that I just described by these great awakening preachers, it sounds a lot like what Luther and Zwingli mm-hmm. uh, were, were preaching as well. And, and so I, I, I think there, there would be an analog with today that, that, that this is analogous, or analogous to what, um, what we often see today, uh, which would be preaching that is uh, void of of gospel void mm. of grace um i mentioned before with edwards this this first great awakening it was an extraordinary supernatural work it was evidently this holy spirit because he'd been doing the same thing for a while and it didn't result mm. in this and so then all of a sudden it does what's to explain it well it wasn't better delivery or better exegesis it was the spirit of god just doing something remarkable and with extraordinary results you you read his account of this um again if if we're thinking jonathan edwards we think this kind of grim Mm. figure who's probably boring as all get out um but the response to his sermons in the midst of this great awakening was uh, was very charismatic Mm -hmm. uh very 
whole body responses of screaming and falling down and crying and mm. weeping and then just incredible joy and tears when they understood the gospel and um and, and here's this jonathan edwards type character who's like what on earth is going on so he decides <laughs> to start chronicling it mm-hmm. um and, and 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 he writes in a he writes an account of this extraordinary work of the spirit and the the title of the book is like you know forty words long. That right, gives you the thesis, but yeah, you don't need to read the book; just read the title. You, that's <laughs> right. That's right. So. But it is interesting because even the you know from from what I read, some that the experience it is. So it isn't just the language or the hymnody or the mm-hmm. unity; it's the experience, the fact that we that so many people had a similar mm-hmm. sort of visceral experience visceral. like that yes. is is part then of uh, the way that culturally people responded to things, to mm-hmm. news. And so you get you know, taxation without representation or you yeah. get the British are coming and you get some other news and there is this more electric sort of a visceral response to that news as opposed to a very subdued, mm-hmm. um, you know, congregational uh, response, which is kind of interesting too, as part of the catalyst, I think, for some of these revolutionary ideas. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Which I, you know, I, the fact that I that that a religious experience so widely held or so widely ex, um, embraced by so many people would sort of be a platform mm-hmm. for other ideas then to have the similar kind of reaction. I don't have any analog for that. Yeah, really, I don't think. No, that's a good point because you know I mentioned before that a very hierarchical society, um, to where even like going to listen to a George Whitfield was an act of rebellion of sorts, mm-hmm. um, and then responding to that gospel, responding to that gospel, um, was a little bit of rebellion against the established the, the mm-hmm. status quo against mm-hmm. the hierarchy. It was bucking the trend it was going against the grain a mm-hmm. little bit and then another interesting thing about the first great awakening is very different than the second is first great awakening it didn't usually have a lot of altar call type stuff it was just preach this gospel and then you would just walk away um just mm. convicted of sin and so you'll read account after account after account of an individual writing in their journal i was in deep distress for two weeks and then finally that something right. clicked and I felt this enormous peace, and I understood that I was in fact wow. a child of God, newborn, and I and I rejoiced and blah blah, you know, like like that. Um, and so you have people thinking kind of independently, and then doing something super significant that was understood to be, in, to some degree, like an act of rebellion. Mm-hmm. I, I I I don't mm-hmm. think we can understate that. Right. Um, so so then when there's other people who are who are speaking a different message but are saying let's buck the trend mm-hmm. that this is not fair that we as individuals maybe we don't find our place quite as easily on this hierarchy anymore maybe maybe there's something wrong with the hierarchy mm-hmm. maybe there's something wrong with the hierarchy well that ground has already been plowed right. for you you're, you're already used to thinking that way mm-hmm. so 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 all of these things and, and again i i i don't want to I don't want to romanticize the American Revolution and say this was just God's plan to raise up a new Israel. I, I don't that, that that would be super excessive in my estimation. Um, 
and yet as God is sovereign over world history um, what's going on here there's there's certainly even from a secular standpoint I think we could look at it and say I, I think we would have to say that we would not have had the American Revolution the way that it came down if not for the ground plowed mm. in the, the, the first great awakening when we've quoted several uh, revolutionary time pastors that would uh, explicitly attach the mm. rebellion against England as a as a Christian act as a this yeah. is how you apply scripture and I I had already been thinking about this is how uh, if, if we have this environment of religious fervor uh, of even emotional mm-hmm. um, fervor and then the people who are responsible to lead those people say, hey, we're going to go over here, mm-hmm. That that's an easy direction yeah. change. But I had never attached the the perceived rebellious act. That's that's even, even more so mm-hmm. the case. So then if you yeah. have pastors saying, here's the way to appropriately apply scripture, and we're already kind of doing this rebellious thing a little bit, yeah. it's all the more easy it is, to get on the bandwagon. It, especially if you think that you're obeying God, mm-hmm. right? Judge for yourself. Do what's right in the eyes of man or do what's right in the eyes of God. Well, they made the decision, I'm going to receive Christ. I'm going to believe the gospel Mm -hmm. against the wishes of my paid pastor, Mm. parish pastor. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm going to do that. So you're used to that sort of thinking. I'm going to obey God because this is what he's calling me to do. And then if you do get someone, uh, another local church pastor who then says, hey, in order to be right, to, to, to be, you know, is it best to obey God or best to obey the king? We have to obey God, and God is calling us to fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, um, you're, you're already used to that kind of thinking, and so it falls on on ears that will definitely hear, you know, for good or for bad. Right. For, yeah, for and, if, and if, the, if the consequences of those actions happen to benefit me quite a bit, it also makes that pretty easy. <laughs> it clearly was God's will then. Yeah. Well, some, I mean, some of it benefit, but, but really they were willing to go to war and risk death yes. for these ideas. So yes, it may benefit us, but it also, I'm, I believe them so strongly. I'm, yeah. I'm right. willing to give my life for it. Yeah. That's and, fair. you know, and, and, and also just to piggyback on that with the American revolution, it was nowhere obvious or certain what the outcome was going to sure. be. It, sure. if, it, if it was obvious what the outcome was going to be, it was, I mean, these, these colonies were basically rebelling against the most powerful nation mm-hmm. on earth mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so yeah, I, we probably do need to say that there was, this was not prosperity gospel preaching. Right. That's right. right. <laughs> that's for sure. Let's be intellectually honest here. Yeah. I think well, and you know, but so, but the, all these things are like poured in and stirred up in the pot. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It's all part of it. And you know, the other thing that's poured in and stirred up, I think, are some enlightenment ideas about individual freedom and yes. this because it's the whole individual freedom thing. You've got you've got two things going on as much as I can see. You've got the idea of religious freedom, which mm-hmm. they, you know, you um, mentioned was in their minds initially, let's have our own uh, state denomination yep. combo. Mm-hmm. And later, the separation of church and state meant is what religious freedom meant later. Mm-hmm. But there's this individual freedom component that I think it's really played for the revolution it gets played in the church as 
as the thing. And that's the refrain that I hear coming back now yes. is the re- refrain of, of personal freedom. I don't want to wear a mask. Don't make me get vaccinated. I've got all of these things that are my, you know, religious heritage, yep. sort of American heritage. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I don't know how you make sense of the Enlightenment ideas in yeah. there too, but yeah, that's 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 a tougher one to untangle. Mm-hmm. I think um, what what I think Jefferson and Madison were really do were really helpful and beneficial in doing was. Um, maybe unknowingly or unwittingly but they they did they did capture some biblical themes things like um the inherent dignity of of the individual thankfully uh yes the um that 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 to be authentically human that 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 religion cannot be coerced um well that's that's really helpful um now they were helped in that by enlightenment thinking Mm -hmm. certainly um, but but not everything in the Enlightenment was false, right? Certainly. Uh, and so and, and and that's always the trouble is that you know there's there's special revelation, there's general revelation, there's special grace, and there's common grace, and right. and, and and a lot of the a, a lot of the blessings that are championed in Scripture are often advocated and protected and established through unbelievers. Um, that that's God making the rain to fall in the just and the unjust. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly a, a conscience. Um, I think Jefferson and Madison were very helpful with that, uh, the, the non-coercive power of religion or, or, or how religion should not be coerced. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that there's, uh, we're, we're told in scripture, don't, don't go against conscience. Um, well, don't go against conscience, even if the tribe or the state says don't go against conscience. I think I think Madison was onto something there, and and I think Jefferson was too. You know, our our whole idea of separation of church and state—that's not in the Constitution. Uh, what's in the Constitution is that government will not make any law that will establish a religion. It and so, uh, but but separation of church and state came from a letter that that Jefferson wrote to, I think, a bunch of Baptist pastors where where he was promising them protection that that the government is not going to stop you from doing what you're doing. We're not going to do that. There's going to be a a wall between Mm -hmm. state and Mm -hmm. church. Uh, We're not going to seek to establish a state church. It's, It's important to the American experiment that you be able to go plant churches. I mean, mm-hmm. he didn't say it like that, but that's effectively what mm-hmm. he was saying. Um, well, I'm deeply grateful for that. Now, mm-hmm. we that that wall between church and state has now been, I think, abused. Um, it's like you know, you can't have any religion if you're involved in politics, and and mm-hmm. you know, the, the 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 Bill of Rights does not promise any sort of freedom from religion. It's freedom of religion, freedom mm-hmm. of conscience. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Was there any, so, I mean, just as we navigate our current landscape of uh, political issues in the church, (laughs) and you do a bit of review of your uh, church history, you know, even the the period that we've talked about Mm today, any advice or any thoughts that you would have for uh, Christians and churches today? Yeah, I I, I said that it's very difficult to unravel um, what oftentimes is 
illegitimately raveled together or, or tied up together, bound together. I think ravel's a word. <laughs> um, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I know you can unravel things. Can you ravel them? I don't it feels, know. It feels reasonable. I, I, I said it. So okay. um, that that is your Christianity with your American experience. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's really easy to baptize our own impulses. It's, it's really easy for us to think that, that the way things are in the American or the church that is in America is the way the church ought to be. Um, and that certain freedoms that are granted by the U.S. Constitution are, well, those must be just Christian rights as well. That's not necessarily the case. I'm not saying it's not mm-hmm. or that it is. It's just not necessarily, and it takes wisdom and discernment to figure that out. Um, I, I am a huge champion of religious liberty, and I, I think I said earlier that one of the implications of religious liberty is it is very, very important that you have the freedom to be wrong. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, that, that's, that's, that's important, um, mm. and, and we can't trample on people's rights to do that. Not, not because that's an American thing, but I think that's a deeply biblically human thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying people have the right to sin, but God has granted us a conscience and he's granted us whatever kind of freedom that he's, human freedom that he's given us. He's given us some human freedom to make choices for good or for bad, for good or for bad. And we have to live with the implications of people making bad choices. Um, I think that's hugely important. Mm-hmm. And yet, we would not say, and have never said, that that freedom to be wrong means that we can imperil the common good. That, mm. that, that, that my freedom of conscience ends where the acting out on my conscience imperils others. That means we have to think about what imperiling is. Mm-hmm. It means we need mm-hmm. to be able to think about what the good is. But it's not just wholesale freedom to do whatever I want to do. That right. I actually have to vet my ideas about what I have the right to do. Some things I don't have the right to do. They're clearly proscribed in, in law and in Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other things that I probably don't have the right to do, not because they're explicitly proscribed by the law, but because they are implicitly mm. prohibited. That's what I mean by proscribed, mm-hmm. like written in law. Right. Um, and, and we have to think about those things. And that means we need to be able to argue them. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have to be able to argue, this is a right of mine and it is good, not just for my own convenience, but it is good for the common good that I exercise this liberty to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, and I think it's important that people have the right to be wrong and to be able to act on being wrong. As much as that's inconvenient for me, I think it's vital. Mm-hmm. I think it's vital to the American experiment. Uh, that I love, and I think it's part of being, and I think it's part of being human, authentically human. We have to live with the results of that. But there's a line, right? Mm-hmm. And so, where is that line? Where is that line? And that's where it gets hard, and we have to be able to argue it, mm-hmm. right? We, and, and and if I can argue for it, then someone's going to be able to argue against it. And and because I'm a, I'm a, a human with dignity. That is, I can think mm-hmm. and I can use the reason that God has given me. That means I can be persuaded that I was wrong, that maybe this right that I think I have to do, I think you've just persuaded me that I was wrong Hmm. and I didn't. Well, that takes humility, but that's part of being a human as well, Mm -hmm. right? Is being able to admit that you were wrong about something. Um, And a grace. 
if I can actually argue and be convinced and, and oh, yeah. pointed toward a better definition of the good, yeah. that's that's a grace. Isn't that awesome? It's wonderful. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not automatons. Mm-hmm. We're, yeah. we're not robots, and I'm as Calvinist as anybody probably. <laughs> I, I, but, love, yeah. I love that I asked you about the implications <laughs> of church history for today, and you essentially said, we can be wrong. That's our yeah. implication. Okay. We can be wrong. Like 45 right? minutes later, I should have said that at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that because there is always this need for humility mm-hmm. that doesn't come naturally to us. Um, well, it's super helpful that it's based in the dignity we have as image bearers of God. Mm-hmm. That's yes. why we have the ability, uh, the chance to be wrong. And that's a way to love your neighbor. Give them the chance to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And because we, we live in a state not where... Um, if you're wrong, we're going to have religious wars about it and you might die. That's right. We don't yep. have that. Instead, it's you're wrong or I'm wrong and we have the freedom to talk about this and yep. let's do this. And let's, I love you. You love me. Let's let's, let's try to persuade one another. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. I love Jesus that much. I want to persuade you <laughs> that yeah. you're wrong um, and hopefully point you towards Jesus. Yeah. That's, a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, if I could throw out a couple of book recommendations, oh, if you might. Yes, yeah. please. So uh, a book by Andrew Walker. He's a professor at Southern, but he, he was an advisor. He had some role in ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's mm-hmm. the Southern Baptist arm that, mm-hmm. that lobbies Congress and protect, trying to protect religious liberty and, and such and immorality and such. Uh, he wrote a book called Liberty for All that I found to be very helpful just on the issue of freedom of religion. Uh, what is this thing? Or freedom of conscience would be a better way a more biblical way to say it. So mm. Liberty for All by, by Andrew Walker. And then a book that I found really helpful just on thinking about what the American Revolution was about was is, is God of Liberty yeah. by, by Thomas Kidd. He's now, well, he's currently a professor at Baylor. I think he's moving over to Midwestern Theological Seminary. I saw that, um, yeah. uh, and uh, it, he's, he, I think, is probably the best church historian writing right now, especially on American church history. Mm. Um, and he's thoroughly evangelical. He's mm. he's he's, mm-hmm. he's one of us. I, I don't yeah. know who else. I, I read that. This. I yeah. read that book yeah. not long ago. Yeah, yeah. That definitely hits the uh, City on a Hill podcast bingo card. If you mentioned okay. Thomas Kidd. <laughs> oh, really? All right. Okay. <laughs> <Bingo card>. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I use a number of his books in in my church history classes too. So that's good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for just spending some time with us, and fun. Uh, it was really fun. And one of the things that we've said before is that we didn't get where we are from nowhere. We came from somewhere. Yeah. You know, they came from somewhere. They came from uh, across, across the ocean because of religious reasons. They got where they were in the Great Awakening and Revolution because of where they had been. And we are heirs of all of that. And it's our job to be responsible with it and to understand um, kind of our place in the world and our place in this whole religious, uh, political morass that we're part of. So, so uh, Todd, thanks for the recommendations. Where can people find you if they want to see what you're doing? Well, I teach at Western Seminary. Uh, you can follow me on t- on Twitter at tl underscore miles. And but I'm I'm not a real provocateur on Twitter. I just <laughs> I, I just do sports takes and 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 recommendations of things that I think mm-hmm. people ought to read. That's pretty much all I do on Twitter. Um, I have a podcast at uh, it's uh, Food Trucks in Babylon that Ryan Lister and I do, um, and then I got a few books out as well. So great! Well, thanks for coming on. It's been wonderful, a great, really fun conversation, and we're thankful that you were, took the time to do it. Thanks, so, Eric. 
For everyone listening, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we are doing helpful, a review obviously goes a long way. Share this with other people. Send it to a friend. If you have questions, send them to podcast at newlifenw.com, and we look forward to the next conversation. Thanks.